Okay, let's get into Michael. It's yeah, very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Um, today on the podcast, we have Michael DiMaria. He is a, I don't even know if I can name all of Michael's accolades. There are so many, but he is was a clinical psychologist that specialized in child psychology for, I think, over 30 years. And I could be a little bit wrong, but that um but he's also like a soul teacher a four-time grammy nominee an award-winning filmmaker um and just a like spiritual guide in general and i have been fortunate enough to get to know michael pretty well over the last year and a half and aaron actually you've known him for much longer than i have and um he's been very a huge part of my own spiritual healing. And I don't even know if spiritual is the right word. I think just more like inner healing when it comes to my own fertility journey. And I'm just so happy that he was here today. Not today, but he is here on the podcast that is airing today about (laughs) to talk about some of like working on your inner child and how that can help reconcile your feelings about your infertility journey. Um, and we talk a lot about the dark night of the soul, which is a very interesting concept. And yeah, that's what I have to say about it. It's fascinating. And Michael's wonderful. And we're just so happy that he spent so much time with us. Yeah. Anything else, Aaron? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Michael is a, a really, again, like a fascinating person. He is. He, walks in two worlds and maybe there's a third dimension world that he also has access to that I've yet to get to but he's the kind of person that has that amazing encyclopedic knowledge he does that you ever talk to those people that just manage to pull out such precise and profound and distinct information as if they're reading it but they just know it He's so ingrained in knowledge, but then he can also recite poems and I just, he's just this really amazing amalgam of a lot of different things. And I think that's why his perspective is so interesting because if you're an intellectual type, he can meet you where you are. Mm -hmm. And if you're a super crunchy granola outer space person he can also just as easily meet you there and i think his gift is creating a space where those two people can commingle mm-hmm. when they don't feel like they have anything in common he can show you how one world reflects the other and he allows us to kind of tap into places that might make us uncomfortable because the way that he uses language builds a bridge totally was very eloquently said. Yeah. Thanks. You know, I think about Michael a lot and I just, I've been doing his piece within. He, you know, he um, yes. contributed access to peace within. And so I've been spending time with Michael in the digital realm myself. So I feel like I'm just tuned in to him and, and uh, what makes him, you know, such an authentic character. I love that. That makes me so happy. Um, well, yeah, we hope you guys enjoy today's episode and be sure to check him out at michaeldemaria.com or go give him a follow on his social media platforms, which is at Dr. Michael DeMaria. Um, and yeah, enjoy. Have a great day. 
I think you can also say that if you're going to talk about the dark night of the soul, there is a certain amount of uh, intimacy and comfort to really get into that. So, I mean, how could we have this conversation without producing that kind of an environment? Yes, absolutely. Well, that's, and, and, you know, even I posted yesterday about about Viktor Frankl saying in the concentration camps, if he was not able to laugh, he wouldn't have survived. So here's this man laughing concentration camp. So on that note, let's jump in. Ah, Michael. Let's do it. We're obviously very organic in nature, but we would love, Aaron and I know all about you at this point, but we would love for you to tell us a little bit about you, your journey, your career, all the little nitty gritties about what makes Michael, Michael. Thank Why you. would we ask you to talk about the dark night of the soul? So do you <laughs> want me to talk about my background or jump right into the dark night of the soul? Well, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, just so people listening understand why. Why were you the chosen one to have this kind of conversation? Because I think your, I think your history is such an interesting mashup. It's just a real dichotomy of interests. So I think you should tell them that. So, you know, I, I think this starts at a very young age. You know, I, I had a number of surgeries and traumas as a child, um, including near-death experience at seven um, with this particular abdominal surgery. And it also resulted in tremendous night terrors and a tremendous amount of phobias. I was someone who grew up scared of the small places, scared of the dark, scared of height, scared. I, I just was full of these phobias after these experiences. And I also, I think, was a deeply introverted child. I didn't talk till I was almost three. I was painfully shy, like on the Asperger's spectrum. And I, uh, I passed for neurotypical real well. I mean, outside everybody, even today I pass as neurotypical, but I'm, I identify as neurodivergent that, that I'm very, uh, I process the world and experience very differently. So it was a pretty natural unfolding for me to find a, a kinship in the study of psychology. I, I say two books saved my life at 18 when I kind of was going through my first, what I called soul kosis, which included suicidal feelings. And I read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which is about how he survived the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. You know, my father grew up in Italy during the war. So I heard a lot of those war stories growing up. And then Carl Jung's Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, which was his autobiography he wrote in his 80s. And here I was having these experiences that probably could have put me in a hospital, feeling at the end of my rope and feeling like I was both going crazy and I wanted to die. And I've always had this sense because my experience is the other world is very peaceful and loving and amazing. And I visited it and I... I was like, oh, I'm, I'm ready to go because this is much harder than I know the other side is. And yet here is this man, Carl Jung, who was like a celebrated psychologist, one of the most celebrated psychologists of the 20th century. And he's talking about his own psychotic 
episode and feelings in this book and his own kind of very challenging relationship to reality and going through these dark nights of the soul. And I was like, oh my God, maybe there's hope for me. And immediately mm -hmm. so I'm going to become a Jungian oriented psychologist. I, you know, that's all I know is I'm going to explore this world of dreams and emotions and feelings. Um, unfortunately, in American psychology, when I got to college, um, which is full of behaviorism and psychiatric medication and a kind of physiological approach. And I was like, this doesn't feel like psychology to me um, because psychology literally comes from the word psyche, which means soul and ology, which means the study of psychology. And actually psyche mean, comes from psyche in Greek, which means breath, butterfly, and soul. Oh, and that. we have completely, isn't that amazing? So yeah, the original psyche, and we think of psyche as this mental thing, right. but the original meaning, and when you look at the myth of psyche and eros and the connection between the soul and love, and it was like, this is the richness that I was seeking. And, and you know, I'd, and, and I would say, you know, to my professors, it's like, you know, they'd say, well, that, you know, what do you want to study? And I, I say, dreams, love, love death. And they're like, well, you cannot operationally define that and measure it and quantify it. So maybe you should become a philosopher, you know? So I got a degree in philosophy and psychology undergrad. And then I realized I would never actually work with people as a philosopher and I wanted to work with people. So I got a master's in psych and then my PhD in clinical psych, but a very special program, Duquesne University in Pennsylvania, which specialized in existential phenomenological psychology. Viktor Frankl was an existentialist. Jung was a phenomenologist. So I was like, wow, I got both here. And so it was wonderful. I like to say, and I'm proud of the fact my dissertation doesn't have one statistic in it. It's all qualitative research. There are case studies. So I was trained in descriptive qualitative um, psychology. And I loved, I, I mean, but I also made me kind of the weird one. I was always the psychologist, mm -hmm. got great, I got great, <laughs> like, you know, results with people and people would say, you know, what's different about that? And I don't want to go too far afield in this, but I think that you both will appreciate this. In phenomenological psychology, um, the whole idea is you go from the particular to the general, not the general to the particular. 98% of, of healthcare out there, including psychology, as it's practiced in the States, you have these theories of depression, anxiety, phobias, and then you apply it like a cookie cutter protocol to Aaron, to BB, to Michael. So you go from this general to particular, which to me actually is wounding to the soul. The soul is our most unique, individual, essential sense of who we are. Phenomenology, we talk about, you begin with the particular. So I always would set aside, once they come into, into my, my consulting room, it was, I'm putting aside everything and I see this person coming into my room as a world. Phenomenology sees everybody as a world unto themselves. And I bracket everything that I've learned, like I know all these theories, but this person comes in and I see Aaron, 
where I see BB and I see you one time, I see you two times, four times, five times. And over time, I start to develop a theory of Aaron or a theory of, of, of BB. And, and I always like to say was, I want you to show me the territory of the world you live in. Because depression tells us nothing. It tells us nothing. It's like, or people say, I, I have insomnia. I'm going, where is it? Can you show it to me? It, it's this noun that reduces the quality of this tremendous emotional territory we're all living in. So I like to say, you know, let's get specific. You know, let's talk about, are you difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep? What's going on in your mind? I wanna see the waterfall of grief. I wanna see the tar pits of, of, of sadness. I wanna, you know, they're tar pits of shame. So it's like, I always like to say, it, when, I, you, when you start seeing vivid imagery of this person's experience, Number one, they feel seen and heard. Number two, they have a sense of there's something special about this place of dread or whatever they're in. I was, would love to say, you know, if you're depressed with this, like, I want you to pop your head up and start looking around. Let's, let's not try to get rid of it. Let's just be with it at first. Let the story go and let's start describing it poetically. Can I tell you what this reminds me of? Yeah, what does it remind you of? The upside down from Stranger Things. <laughs> I knew you were going to oh, say that. Like that's when everyone's experience, oh right? Like, I don't know. That just resonates yes. to me. We're all living no, in I this world that we're all seeing together. But inside yes. you, you have your own upside down where all of that is oh, happening. That's beautiful. But that's beautiful. you have a dark side, uh, you know, the tar pits of worry. I mean, that to me is an amazing um i'm super visual too so that kind of visualization of like explain to me what your depression looks like yeah, like that's beautiful wow yeah because it is it's we are and you both know this but this hopefully will will be helpful to listeners out there we obsessively compare our insides to other people's outsides outsides so and our insides are an upside down yeah. And, and, and that's what's so challenging. One of the beautiful things about my practice for 33 years that I did was I could, I had the privilege, the honor the, to, to be able to walk into this sacred upside down in each person. And it actually was helpful for me. I was like, oh, I'm not completely screwed up, you know, because every, <laughs> and, and, and the bottom line is we are all screwed up. I mean, one of my things is we're all insane. We just have different ways of being insane. Um, and when you get rid of that and start not believing people's self-promotion or, or, or what they, <laughs> what they have, what they're putting out on the outside, life can get so much lighter and more mm -hmm. playful because we, I love the phrase, many people have said that, but I think one of the first was to play, was Plato, you know, be kind to everyone you meet because everyone you meet is fighting a tremendous battle in their upside down. He didn't say the upside down, but I'm adding that. <laughs> so Michael, what would you say? How do you actually articulate a dark night of the soul? What is that? How does one know that that is where they are? Yeah. So I'll start with a Jung quote again. I used to, this was so helpful to me. And it was one of the things I probably said you know, at least once or twice a week when I was working with people uh, more, you know, 
when people would come to him and say, oh, I just got a promotion. I'm getting married. I'm pregnant. I'm, you know, you know, I just had, I won the lottery, whatever it was. He'd say, you know, um, if we just keep our heads, maybe something not too terrible will happen. <laughs> and whenever people would come to him and say, I've lost my job, I've lost my, my child, or I miscarried, or I have, I'm getting divorced, or I'm, and most importantly, I'm at the end of my rope and I, I can't go on another day. And I, I feel like I just want to die. Say, yeah, good. Let us open a bottle of champagne. Now we actually will learn something about ourselves. So this is the beginning of a dark night is, I have a whole diagram I, I usually uh, draw and it's in my book, Peace Within. That when we come into the world, we are all soul, no ego. You know, we don't have a language. We don't even know our names and we don't, we can't communicate, but would we say we not, we aren't who we are? You know, like when we look at a, an infant or a young child before their language system, they're just pure soul. They're all soul and no ego. They're like little Zen masters. They're so present and spacious. But as soon as they come into this world, this fascinating process takes place. And that is they do this and their parents smile. They do this, their parents frown. A little later on, they do this, they get an A in school. They do this, they get an F and go to the principal's office. They get to be a teenager, they do this, the opposite gender pays them the attention and they do this and they run the other way. And over this time, what happens is it begins to develop an ego. We could also say your personality, your persona. So this is not a bad thing. Our soul is a child of nature and we could also say the divine. The ego is a child of society. Mm -hmm. It's not our true genuine self. It's our social self. Ego is not a bad guy, just a social guy. But we get what happens is the ego becomes the center of gravity of the self. And the ego has all these fantasies about and visions about what your life's going to be. And we're fed this and there's nothing wrong with this, but it, it, it separates us from the roots of our being the deeper wisdom, what I like to call the innate wisdom of the soul. The soul has this innate wisdom. The soul is like the acorn of a tree. No matter where you plant that acorn, it's going to become an oak tree. It doesn't matter if you plant it in Japan or Africa. That's not social. That's essence. And we each have a soul print as individual and unique as that. But our world divorces us from that. So what happens, a dark night is when the, the ego gets blown out of the center of gravity of the self. And the soul is attempting to come into the center of gravity of the self, but initially it's just totally empty because it's like vacated. Mm -hmm. So I always like to say, it's like the dark night is also like you've, you know, when all your plans turn to ash, you know, when you've invested in this plan or vision and, and, and the ground under you just completely is taken away and you feel yourself groundless. And, and with, with no idea where to go, what to do. And you start asking these questions, who the fuck am I? You know, what, <laughs> what, where do I go now? I, I don't even know who I am without this dream, without this goal, without this vision. So this is a very, very, to native people, they would call this the ashes time. And the beautiful thing about indigenous culture versus Western culture and Western culture say, Oh my goodness, you become depressed. 
you know, and we need to give you medication. Um, I see these experiences as actually, you know, depressions and things like this is actually the mutiny of the soul saying, I'm done playing this social right. game. It's our social coding. And the social coding is important to learn a language maneuver, but we have to do our nature coding, get back, what, what's my acorn? What kind of tree am I? Which our culture doesn't give us that opportunity. And it just cultures you in your teenage years would have done some kind of a soul initiation to ask the question, what kind of tree I am? am I? But we usually hang on to these more superficial cultural dreams that were handed, you know, right. supposed to have. You're a baseball house. player. I, You're right. a cheerleader. Or, You're a smart exactly. person. You're a great yes. student. Even a doctor, acupuncturist. Mm -hmm. So and I'm going to get my house and two and a half kids and two cars and, you know, all of that. It's the, you know, right. the American dream. And, and these things alienates from our soul. Yeah. And so the dark night of the soul is, is, uh, is both extraordinarily dangerous because people do die, but what's needed is not a suicide, but an ego side, but it's so painful that ego hates the dark night of the soul. However, the soul delights in it. Right. I think even the phrase, the pursuit of happiness steers us in the, it's the, why not the pursuit of self, the pursuit of soul, the pursuit of center. But instead we say American dream, the pursuit of happiness. Oh, and you can buy happiness at your local target. <laughs> like, well, it's, it is, oh. it, it's a recipe for suffering because I always like to say, okay. yeah, happiness. What was that, BB? It almost, cause it makes, when you say the pursuit of something, it means that the pursuit of the thing is only is unattainable. Like you can't just, it means like you always have to be looking for happiness somewhere else instead of relishing what you're having right, right now. Uh, yes, absolutely. Right. It's kind of a, a driving force to capitalism where everybody's trying to sell you something because the message is you're not enough. There's an old saying, particularly in Buddhism, that happiness is not a destination. It's a manner of traveling. And the root word of happiness is happens. So I like to challenge people. It's actually happiness arises when you begin to be present to what is happening in the moment, which is the opposite of pursuing something. It's actually being with what is in this moment, which is a big part of the antidote or the support in working through a dark night of the soul. And I think that when you said that earlier about the psyche being the breath and the butterfly, I, that's the arrival of spirit to me, the combination of breath and a butterfly, the delicateness, the temporariness of it. Like, but isn't that the presence of contentment and happiness to be in your breath, like a butterfly, just, I don't know, that whole conversation has so much symmetry to me. Yeah. That's really, really beautiful. Well, and two other pieces of the butterfly metaphor that is so powerful one of my favorite phrases to people is it doesn't mean not to have dreams, but I love to say land on your dreams as lightly as a butterfly on a flower. Oh, that way you're not taking it so hard and knowing that, whoa, that 
that if that flower drops away, I can find another flower to land on or another dream, you could say. The other side of it, the butterfly is probably the most powerful metaphor of the dark night of the soul. Because what's happening, if people can, I will say, you know, when all of a sudden the ego is like the caterpillar and the soul is like the butterfly. So when all of a sudden your dreams are burned to ash, you begin a cocooning and the ashes time, as some native people would say, they'd also say that you're in a very sacred space. People would actually ask people in native traditions, certain native traditions, when they were in the ashes time to pray for them because they knew they were kind of closer to the veil. And so the idea is you're going through a cocooning. What does the caterpillar have to do? They have to become goo. They have to dissolve who they think they are. And you, can you imagine how dreadful that must feel like to the caterpillar? It's like a dying. And that's what kind of happens to our egos as it becomes kind of a ego dissolution. And there's actually, this is a, a physiological truth. The butterfly cell, the caterpillar cells that turn into the butterfly, they're called imaginal cells. And the imaginal cells begin to dissolve the cells of the caterpillar because the caterpillar initially, the caterpillar cells start attacking the imaginal cells because it's like a cancer. It feels like, oh my God, this thing is trying But then the imaginal cells overwhelm the caterpillar cells. And while the imaginal cells then become nothing but your 100% imaginal cells. And that's, a, it's amazing biologists have used that term, imaginal cells, which was a, one of the favorite terms of Jung was the imaginal. He liked the word imaginal versus imagination because he felt the soul's faculty was this imaginal capacity to reimagine, um, listening to dreams, et cetera, which is a great thing to do in soul work. So all of a sudden, then the butterfly cells start to take over and then that butterfly emerges from the cocoon. And you could imagine when we emerge from a dark night of the soul, it's like a butterfly coming out. And our old life just seems like some past dream. But it's very, very difficult. But that is that is the main metaphor I use of moving through the dark night. Right. And I would assume that that's an uncomfortable process. Oh, I've never been dreadful. in a chrysalis and gone through that phase myself, like yeah. in a real physical sense. But I would assume that the caterpillar might be a little disturbed at the process in the beginning. I don't really know 100%. what their consciousness is like. But yeah, the whole point is that it is it's uncomfortable, but right. it's okay to be uncomfortable. So, so okay. In fact, that's another key piece for me with myself and others, no matter what kind of work I'm doing, is that um, the kindness that's required when we start, when our ego projects begin to dissolve, when we, we get what we don't want or don't get what we want, which is this universal thing happens to all of us ongoing you know, and when this begins to happen, the first thing we tend to do is blame other people, which is we're, we're pushing that pain away, that grief, because we're actually needing to grieve the loss of a dream. But then the harder part is we start to blame ourselves. Something wrong with me. I'm fundamentally broken.
broken. I'm there's I'm, you know, I'm I'm fundamentally flawed, and this is just an act of violence to ourselves. And what's so interesting that that I think if people can be curious, drop the blame, stop, drop the punishing, uh, drop the self aversion, the self hate, the self loathing, and just be with the energy of that emotion, of because underneath every emotion, underneath fear, underneath anger, is grief. And we live in a very grief illiterate, death phobic culture. And these are all instances, whenever our ego projects fail, it's just a reminder that our life here is finite, horribly fragile and contingent, and that death is actually always over our shoulder. And these are small deaths. Um, in, in more awakened, soul-centric societies, they would say you we, we are supposed to have many small deaths on our way to the great death, and these small deaths actually condition us, like exercise conditions us for life. These defeats condition us for death. And that many soul-centric cultures would say, you know, aging gracefully and dying well is one of the things we're here to learn along the way. Right. Um, but we're given the message that just like the stock market, it should just keep going up and up and up. Right. And, you know, Anti-aging. Don't right. age at any cost. Right. I hate the exactly. anti-aging phrase. Yeah, yeah. It's it's ageism. It, there's such a, mm -hmm. you know, now that I'm getting older, it's this sense of, you know, I'm 61 now coming into my 60s and my early elderhood. Like a fine wine. <laughs> there you go. I like to say I'm 61 years young. But this sense of, you know, I see it around me, that kind of ageism that, that um, you know, now you're starting to get to be worthless once you get past a certain age, you know, and we have such a obsession with youth in our culture, you know, which is, which is not healthy for the soul. I have a lot of things to say. <laughs> yes. Yes, BB, jump in. I, okay. This is a novice question, but when someone experiences this dark night of the soul, you know, like in layman terms, what could that, is that in like, I'm like in layman terms, like, how do you know you're there? How do you know you, how do you know when you're there? When how do you decide that it's that and not depression? Cause everybody's going to say, I think you're depressed. How can you recognize, no, I'm in a transformation? Right. Well, yeah, no, it's a really good question. So there's a, so the difference between what we might say as, um, because there are, I mean, there, when our amino acids are, you know, you know, I did a lot of targeted amino acid supplementation, integrative wellness on nutrition and, you know, if there's not any main issue going on in your life, we, we call it, you know, um, it, you can be serotonin deprived. If there's not an actual loss or not an actual sense of what we would also call an existential crisis, an existential crisis is, you know, that you're very clear you've had some kind of, that the, that the ground under you has been pulled out because, um, something's happened where you're feeling like a failure, like there's something to actually point to. Um, well, when there isn't though, because, you know, I, I want to, I'm hearing like 
Jung and Viktor Frankl in my in my heart right now saying, yeah, but everything is transformation. Everything is part of the dark night, you know, because yes, you want to take care of your, your nutrition, go see Aaron, get some acupuncture, all that's important. But if you really tending, I think very few people in our culture are actually what I would call soul initiated or living from the soul. So I would say that almost, I want to actually add the fact that every time we're feeling darkness, and I would love to actually make, uh, because all kinds of what we call mental illness is, you know, psychotherapy, the literal meaning, the etymology is care of the soul. So no matter what's happening, doesn't mean not to tend to your nutrition. Yes, uh, 30 minutes of cardio three times a week is going to boost your serotonin by 80%. You do all those things, but the sense of feeling meaning and purpose and connection to a larger sense of meaning or purpose in your life is always something, because that's what I would say. Also, be writing down your dreams, be curious about your thoughts, journal what's going on for you, asking yourself, what do you feel the meaning of purpose of your life is? You know, the two of the, the kind of the main determiner of both longevity and overcoming chronic illness and uh, avoiding serious conditions like cancer and heart disease, two things that are most like the number one variable that's 10 times higher than almost anything else nutritionally or anything else. And you never hear about this because you can't sell this to anybody. But the thing I've seen people overcome in just tremendous odds. Um, and this goes back to Viktor Frankl of how he survived the, the concentration camps were a sense of meaning and purpose. Sense of meaning and purpose is, is lifeblood of the soul. So the ego is constantly looking for acceptance and approval. That's its goal. That's its motivating forces. It's there to get social acceptance and approval. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's, it's not grounded. The soul is interested in authentic connection to one's own innate sense of meaning and purpose and authentic connection with others. So this sense of that is something that's always ongoing. And, and I could say almost any cycle from anxiety to depression, to insomnia, all those things, I will tell you, there will be some factor of being able to ask to what degree do I know the meaning and purpose of my life? You know, what is the meaning of all my striving? You know, Victor Frank, we kind of say back in the day, Eric Frump said the same thing, you know, you ask, you know, nine people on the street, you know, gosh, you're rushing off to this. What is the main purpose of all your strivings? You know, what are you here to do? What is your mission on the planet? Most people have never asked themselves that. Uh, most people have never asked themselves or been given the question, which to me is kind of just terrible because this is a key thing in indigenous cultures. If you weren't scared of failing and you weren't worried about money, what would you do with your life? The soul, the Latin word for soul is anima, and we get the word animation and animal from that. 
So animation means the life blood, like what brings you alive. So the soul is what brings you alive. And it's what you do when you have nothing else to do. It's what, what uh, you, you lose track of time. It's, it's when you're in your innate joy that we, we say, actually it's an ancient idea, the soul is here for its own joy. It actually is what gives us joy. We lose track of time. And answering that question, so I, I really do believe that whenever you're feeling a sense of darkness, there is something you can begin to ask around. Um, there's a very simple exercise. Write down the meaning of my life is and you keep writing answers to that until you write something that makes you cry. Okay. I want to jump in and ask a question now. Okay. You write something until you write something that makes you cry. So in the context of the origins of this podcast is this dovetailing with fertility. Fertility, procreation, becoming a parent, raising a family, I think for most people is deeply connected to our ancestry, what we're here to do, what is your life's purpose. So I feel like there is an, there's a special kind of insult when you're not able to do that, because that's not something that is striving based necessarily right? It's not career driven. And so I think that maybe there's a compounding effect. Absolutely. So how can we reorient when it's that? Like if you feel like you've lost your connection to our purpose as humanity of being able to mother or father, that just feels like it would blow both things out of the water. Yeah. Your ego and possibly your soul too. People always say like my infertility, you know, it changed my faith. It changed the way I think about God. All, it's just a huge asteroid landed in your life. So where's the reconciliation with that? Yeah, I know that's beautiful. That's, that's such a deep question because our sense of it, it actually there's even that biological imperative but certainly i think there's no important no more important job on the planet than being a parent you know and we also know in developmental psychology later in life one of the biggest things that help us age gracefully is a sense of generativity and most people gain their sense of generativity and most people gain their sense of meaning and purpose through parenting and through parenthood so that's very true. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a very, very deep part of who we are as human beings. I can tell you, I mean, you know, one of the reasons I moved from psychology um, to working as a guide of the soul and guiding, you know, vision fasts in the wilderness and is because when I came into that, you know, it's, it, it was a, a tremendous sense of loss when I was a child protection team psychologist and these children were, were raped and murdered. And I had no sense of, uh, I felt, I felt responsible, even though I wasn't, I felt responsible. And I, my religion didn't give me ground. Psychology didn't give me ground. 
and through a set of synchronicities, I find myself guided by this native teacher in the wilderness going without food or water in the middle of nowhere. And I, I wanted to die. And I felt like I couldn't go on. And what I experienced out there was, um, it was a sense of uh, emptiness that had sacredness to it. It was like, by not running away from the emptiness, not running away from not just depression, it was, it was, I felt wretched. You know, I felt dread. I felt that I was the end of my rope and I wanted to die. By not running away from that feeling, but sitting with it and not entertaining the stories and not going into the self-pity I had been, maybe it was just you know, for fasting, that was part of it. And really, I remember this like hole in my heart and this ache in my gut, like this fist in my gut I couldn't get rid of. And, and I, I remember just sitting there and saying, I'm not going to run from you. I'm going to apprentice myself to this pain. I'm going to get curious about this pain and I'm going to be here with you until something emerges. And that was years. I mean, the beginning was just being with the ache, being with the rawness, being with the brokenheartedness. But I tell people a broken heart is an open heart. And there are many ways, there are many ways to bring compassion. And there's many ways to mother, there's many ways to nurture, there's many ways to father. And um, it reminds me of this, most moving story by Tikok Nan, the Vietnamese Buddhist master. And, you know, here he was in Vietnam during the, just the horrible violence that occurred. And he was in a village where they had just been napalmed and there was just, just, just devastation, just death everywhere to the old and the young, similar to what's going on in the world today. He came across this mother who was holding a small child. And she was just shell-shocked. And, uh, and she said, you know, uh, a monk, you know, because he was a monk at the time, I, I have nothing, my family, my children, my husband, my brothers, my sisters, they're all gone. He said, I've, I've, she said, I found this, this child in the, in the wreckage, and I have no faith. I've lost faith in everything and everyone. And Tikak Nan said, is there anything left that you love? She said, I love this child, even though it's not my own. And he said, then follow that thread. Just put everything, all of your faith in the love you feel for that child. And I think that's, that's the key is how can we find a way, and it begins with being more merciful to ourselves when we're in pain. You know, how can we be kind to ourselves? How can we be mindful of what is happening without the storyline? And I think the most important is the shared humanity that people from the beginning of time have been blown apart by asteroids that hit that how vulnerable and contingent our lives are. And if we can realize we're not, 
Well, even if we're feeling wretched, you know, wretchedness has a purpose. It softens us and it makes us more compassionate if we can bring that compassion to ourselves too. And what is mothering but the ultimate sense of love? Probably the most powerful thing that happened on this vision quest was uh, I kept having this dream of this old native woman and we were in this lodge and she had these wrinkled face and it looked like trace lines of rivers. And I was asking her all these questions. Why do these children die? And why did this happen? And why me? Blah, blah, blah. And she was just rocking and she was just going, shh. And she would motion for me to put my head on her shoulder. She would just rock me and sing to me. And she was mothering me in a way that I was no longer able to mother myself. And she was caring for my soul. And so for me, it always comes back to, um, okay, you cannot give physical birth. What can you love? What can you love with the quality and tenderness you would bring to your own child? It's the hardest. And I don't want to pretend it's easy. It can take, it can take a lifetime. Sure. It's, I mean, obviously something I've had to really grapple with myself, you know, yeah. Could you love that infant in yourself, the little infant baby? You know, I think that's what's the hardest is how can we, uh, in my book, Peace Within, I have Peace Within the Soul, and I talk about how I had to come back from that vision quest and start. I had been so intolerant and violent towards myself but that included my inner child and not just my inner child, but my inner infant. Yeah. And I had, and I still struggle with that. You know, how can I be, how can I love the unlovable parts of me? You know? I was going to say, I had kind of a realization, I think yesterday, it was really a little profound for me. Um, kind of a reconciling in my own, journey to trying to figure out why I feel so much failure when it comes to my fertility and it is just I think a complete product of me being an overachiever in general I think it's more at this point for me that you know okay like let's equate it to like I don't know taking like the SATs or something, right? Like you take the SAT for the first time, you don't do really well. So then you go take a class and you learn how to do better. And you know, learn how to kind of like, Aaron hates this word, optimize your skill sets in taking the SAT. You learn <laughs> how to take the SAT, right? You go back and take it again. And then hopefully you get a better grade. That's what I did. Um, and with fertility, I feel like I've done the same thing, right? Like I tried, didn't do super well, had miscarriages, went to an expert to try and learn all the ways that I could optimize what I'm doing. And then I still didn't get better. I arguably almost got worse. And I mm. think like my, it's almost not the result because I don't need to have, I have come to terms with not having a biological child. I'm very at peace with that. I am very excited to just be a mother in any other way that I can. Mm. But 
the failure for me that I still can't wrap my brain around. And it's, again, I think it's talking, like you said, to my inner child, that's like, you have to be good at this. Like, because that is just nature. That is what I've been told my entire life. That's what I need to be good at. And so it's almost not the thing itself that upsets me at this point. It's more of just the fact that I failed at it. And it, I didn't fail at it because, you know, there's nothing I could have done at this point. It's just, right. Not right. In, it's just not something that I'm supposed to do, you know, but still for whatever reason, that is, it's the failure that upsets me more than the idea of not being, having my own biological children. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's such a key piece. And I, I know that place really, really well as an overachiever. We, we've talked about this, you know, we share a lot of that. And I, and, and, you know, I, I think what's important is knowing that um, Samuel Beckett has a beautiful phrase in one of his plays, fail, fail again, fail better. Um, and then James Joyce has another quote, you know, that mistakes and failure are the portal to discovery. And I also love, you know, Rilke says, I will tell you how one grows by being defeated by greater and greater things. Success makes us stupid. And, and part of that is, I think, this difference between the ego and the soul. And so when I, when I ask this question, you know, when I ask myself this question is like, okay, is this ego or soul? And remember, ego is just a social guy. It's not about beating up the ego. Actually, the ego is the one that has to die like our body. So we actually have to be to practice being really tender with it. But the feeling of failure is very egoic. I mean, it's it's because, you know, we've been conditioned. It's our social self and, and our social acceptance and approval, especially as young children, we're riding on success. I know I can speak for me. The only way I got any attention in my family was being the A student, being the success, being the, you know, I, I, that's how I got love and attention and belonging. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I, I still struggle with it, but I, when I can tell myself, well, it's just, it's my, it's my ego, but I also, I kind of like to say, like, I, I like to kind of play these little explosion games with like, I am a failure. My name is failure. I am nothing but failure. <laughs> and kind of like own, like, like kind of be provocative of like, kind of, can I create some space in there and, and have a sense of humor? That's why I love that Samuel Beckett, like, okay, fail again, fail better. Um, the other thing is, you know, no mistakes, only lessons, you know, Edison, he had failed quote, well, his, you know, they, he was trying to create, find what metal, created uh could could be the light bulb hold electrical charge without burning out and sustain and he hadn't found tungsten yet and so here he had tried over a thousand times and his all of his crew were just like we're out of money this is ridiculous it won't work we have failed one thousand times and he said no we have succeeded a thousand times in what doesn't work now, that doesn't mean going back to try to, and, and, and literally it was like the, on another 20, 30 tries, they came across tungsten, but it's very hard. And I, and I feel like, um, again, another maybe more practical way of dealing with that baby is I know when I can, I, I visualize my little boy, my inner child, and he's coming to me feeling like a failure. And I say, hey, buddy, hey, buddy. And I, I kind of put him in my lap and I say, you're not a failure. You know, you gave it your all. And wow, what did you learn? 
you know, what did you learn? And uh, let's, let's, you know, let's keep exploring. Or maybe just let go of this game and find another one. But I love you no matter what. That's what I, I did this in a, you know, part of my own therapy was, you know, what was it I wished I had heard as a kid? So, and that was, I love you no matter what. What about, we all have this in common, the overachiever. Oh. What about? Oh, you do too? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what about those that, I don't want to use the word underachiever, but the people that, you know, that are that, that it's more scared to even begin, scared to try, were never, um, I feel like infertility for this group is reaffirmation. We'll see, I can't do anything. I'm not good at anything. I mm -hmm. shouldn't even try anything. Yeah. I, it's not an overachiever. It's the essence of, I'm never gonna be good at that, so why would I even bother trying? And maybe their their mental story is a little bit different, but the infertility piece is reaffirming. But is there a different way that they can handle themselves that says it's not about failure for them necessarily? Do you? Oh, sure. I mean, but but I also it, it is. And I would say that it's um, they get to the core of what is true for all of us, which is I'm fundamentally flawed. I'm a reject. I'm no good. This is a universal experience of human beings at least in, in the 21st century in western culture and you know most modern cultures that the sense of again this idea of the difference between the outside and inside this this inner world of warring parts of us and those who have struggled the most and maybe have already felt like a failure and felt like maybe the one thing i will succeed at is being a parent and then that doesn't happen yeah that's even a more precarious more challenging difficult place and yet the the answer is the same is mm. tremendous compassion and love and kindness towards your own. And, and that's why I, I feel inner child work is one of the most powerful things in all of this, because I feel a lot of people are wanting to have a child in efforts to heal their inner child wounds. Mm -hmm. And it is, it can be a profound experience to reparent yourself through your kids, but it also is precarious and dangerous because um, children are not always going to be our adoring mirror and they're going to push us all of our buttons. And so the most important thing we can do is really our inner child matters and they are the source of our soul and our joy. And to, to practice care of our own soul and self-care. When I say care of our soul, it means really a particular kind of tenderness towards that, that woundedness that infertility brings up. And asking yourself, you know, so where do I feel it in my body and how can I bring some love and attention there? You know, and, and that also means to let yourself grieve. I mean, there's an old saying, it, you know, the Minkwas tribe, the soul would have no rainbow if the eyes had no tears. The soul would have no rainbow if the eyes had no tears. So, so the power and importance of tears for healing these heartbreaks are so critical. And, and it does, though, open the heart. I remind people, broken heart is an open heart. 
And to walk into that brokenness will change you, change relationships, and change your world. And if you see the, the, the possibility of becoming more compassionate of yourself and others and, and get out of shame and blame, you know, shame and blame keeps us really stuck in that place. And we'll turn to addictions and we'll turn to um, self-harm or harming others or, or stuck in resentment or anger or regret depression, but bringing kindness, letting ourselves grieve, moving through the grief will open our hearts. And then something, something usually, usually emerges. Um, now, you know, some new way of being in the world, some new something begins to happen. How would you then, you know, oftentimes, I guess the norm at this point is that, you know, this is typically infertility is a partnering situation, you know, the procreation part of this, you're typically in a couple. Um, how do you reconcile all of this with a partner? How do you, how do you, you know, I know that I'm very lucky in my situation where that I, I just am very lucky that my husband and I have been able to work through it and we're completely on the same page. And, you know, obviously us having children in any way that we can do that you know so for us it's adoption but what is I feel like I hear this a lot just in friends that when there is say male factor infertility that the option for the man to use donated sperm or something like that is a real source of contention much more I feel than the female saying well I'll adopt eggs it doesn't need to be my biology how does that reconciliation come together? Like, why, why is it like that? And how do you, I guess, go through that? How do you go through, obviously, the search and nurturing of your inner child when your partner might be feeling, going and going through the exact same thing? Like, how, how, how do you come together? Do it yeah. together? Or is it, a, yeah. is it like a, self-fulfilling thing that you have to do on your own and hope that you end up together on the other side. Like, I don't know if I'm or if that question makes sense, but you know, how. Yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, well, I'm here, kind of hearing two questions. One, number one, how to, uh, the, the more specific, deeper question of, you know, um, or I say it's actually the more general, deeper question of how, when, how does a couple, how does this impact a couple and how can they uh, move through this, together and or separately and then the other was kind of a little bit more about why is the male ego so much more fragile about you know uh, having <laughs> a donated sperm which is I, I, if we have time i'll second uh, i'll talk about that in, in a minute but the, the more general question it is very difficult just like any loss to a couple and it's more profound when it, it involves both of them you know it it's one thing when you know, one, we always kind of, you know, I've been married 45 years now and not 40 years, 40 years, 41 years in relationship, 46 years. All right. Um, so in a relationship, 46 years uh, that, you know, we kind of say, gosh, it's always good if, you know, we're not both going through a dark night at the same time. You know, it's like, it's really nice when it's just, you know, okay, you've got that going on, but I'm in a good place. Or you got that going, but I'm, you know, or I'm not in a good place, but you are. But this can bring up for couples a particularly challenging experience because they're both experiencing, you're both experiencing a loss and you're both grieving. 
So the general thing is, again, yes, you have to do the individual grieving, but then you also have to do grieving as a couple. So there's two kinds of grief. And I, I actually, one thing I'll tell people particularly, and this happens to every couple, even if it's not infertility, that a couple will run out of dreams. Like often, if you're together long enough, you're going to succeed. You know, oftentimes, hopefully, you know, you've got your jobs, you got through school, you got your house, or you did or didn't get kids. And, you know, and then it's kind of like um, that. I always say couples need to keep redreaming, you know, having new dreams together, I think is a really important thing when things happen like this. The other part of it is allowing each to do your own grief and that each of the griefs may come out in a very different way. You know, and men do often grieve very differently. Uh, oftentimes, you know, they may just start taking more fishing trips or, you know, spending more time, you know, golfing or what it might be. Um, and it is hard to get men to honor their heartbreak and tears. I mean, that's the, just one of the most difficult things because men in our culture are not given permission or taught that tears are okay and, and that grieving is okay and that actually to become a more whole, full, satisfied, healthy human, you've got to have a whole range of emotions. Um, but that is very important. When that's not available, I do say, you know, in what you can do together, this is something I do around a lot of things when they're, you're up against arguments and disagreements because our tendency is, again, when we're going through loss or grief, the first thing is denial and, and anger. We're blaming another person. And who's the easiest person to blame is your partner. So when I see that dynamic, I'd often get um, both of them to say, I want you to get a picture of your, of your partner as a child you particularly like. And the husband puts the picture of their wife as a child they particularly like on their bedside table. And then the wife gets a picture of her husband as a child she particularly likes on her bedside table. And the remembering when you see them and you're seeing anger or distance or coldness, imagine them being a scared little boy and a scared little girl. And it may, it's not that you can do the grieving for each other, but you can see the hurt underneath because anger comes from hurt and fear. You know, anger comes from hurt and fear. So that made me cry. Um, yeah. Really great way. I don't know. I think that that's, you're right. I mean, I think that it, you know, when you're in the throes of infertility, really, really easy to forget that you have a partner that's experiencing this too. Even if you absolutely, are, you're the one that's experiencing the physical, you know, process of loss or death that passes right through you or whatever you, whatever you're experiencing, that your partner is also suffering too. And most of the time the partner is grieving because they don't know how to help you grieve. Right. You know, it's just, and I think that that visual is really, really beautiful and a practice that we should all, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I still practice. I've got a picture of Kathy I really like, and whenever I'm, and even when like you get mad at them or frustrated or why they're acting this way, and it's just like visualizing them as a scared child, you know, and that they're in their stuff because of of fear and and challenge and difficulty. Yeah.
Yeah, that's really beautiful, Michael. Mm. Um, I feel like I should tell you that what you really need to do, in my expert opinion, is to do a call-in podcast, mm. <laughs> like an old-fashioned call-in show. Oh my gosh, it would be amazing. It would be amazing. Oh, let's it set would. that up. How do we do that? You do such a beautiful job with handling people's questions. Mm. Yes. It really would be fantastic. Wow. Thank you for that. Um, thank you so much. Um, yeah. I, 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 you know, you guys know, I, you know, I retired my practice a few years ago and I, I still do uh, what I call soul mentoring or soul guidance, but very, very limited and and I was also a professor for years. And then I also did a lot of these soul groups and heart warrior groups. And I, I do miss it. So thank you. I mean, this has been really a joyful for me of uh, reminding it kind of like, you know, gosh, yeah, this was something I, I've spent, you know, four decades doing. And, mm. you know, um, it, well, it does. Uh, so thank you for that. It means a lot. You might become instrumental to our development and going mm -hmm. I just I there aren't enough people that have the understanding or the capacity or even the desire maybe to talk about infertility and these types of struggles in this way this is not a voice that we are really hearing and so BB and I are pretty um intent on trying to produce that because there's an audience for this so we'll probably come to you many times over to ask more questions and get more guidance and i know i'm super excited about having you on to talk about the origins of the soul and how scientific reproduction overlaps with ancestral who we are i think i mean we're not gonna do it today that's a different conversation, but I think we're going to invite you back many times. Well, so thank would, you so much oh, for all you. your insights. Thank you. I, I would love that. And I want to really, my hat's off and applaud both of you for, you are doing just what I've been saying, which is walking into this, uh, this darkness and, and sitting with it. And then also, also seeing the shared humanity and you are, you're allowing the grief and difficulty you know, Bibi, you personally in your own life and Aaron as her practitioner who has struggled feeling like a failure of not being able to, you know, solve that. And that you're walking into that, being curious and seeing how that connects you to this huge, unspoken, silent source of suffering for so many people that that isn't there. So that's exactly what I'm talking about is that you too have gone through the caterpillar cocoon stage in this podcast and the fertility resort is part of you emerging as your butterfly of, of bringing you into new land and new territory. You've let, you were, you were brave enough and courageous enough to sit with the defeat long enough to let it move you and inspire you and grow you into something new. And I want to say another way, one of our favorite, you know, one of the age old ways of thinking of the dark night of the soul is not only the butterfly, but gestation and then going down the birth canal and then being born into a new world. 
And that's a painful, bloody process. You know, <laughs> I mean, we romanticize giving birth, but let's be totally honest. It's a, mm. it's a bloody, painful enterprise. And yet, because there's such joy to the emergence of something new, but we're going through deaths and rebirths all the time. And I just applaud you to for giving birth to the fertility resort. And this podcast, the Protective Space Podcast. The nicest thing anybody's ever said to us. I think. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. You're just so eloquent. The way you say things is really beautiful. And even that brought tears to my eyes. That's the second time today. So I am definitely. That's my goal in life is is getting you to cry, Aaron. So it just makes. Me I <laughs> well, you know, somebody has to soften my edges a little bit. <laughs> I love it. I appreciate it. I'm here for it. I, I mean, this may be TMI, but I think one of the reasons I also pursued more of a soul work perspective and in, in, in this understanding of helping people find the healing power of tears. Um, my mom was very, very traumatized growing up, and I think she was so sealed off, she couldn't be with her own tears. And um, every time, you know, I, I can help others touch that place i feel like i'm still trying to help my mom mm. but it it has been so healing and towards the end of her life she was able to and and, uh, and i just uh, honor that in you because you've you your own courage it takes courage to walk into our our tears so our soul can have a rainbow thank you i love you guys no, we, we love you too friend the Protected Space Podcast is hosted by Aaron Attaway and Bryant Liggett and is brought to you by The Fertility Resort. To learn more about us, head over to thefertilityresort.com and give us a follow on all social platforms at Protected Space Pod.